Oh, you sound people. <laughs> you actually got to plug it in. Morning, everyone. Uh, good to be together. Um, amid all the wonderful news of things that are going on, I have some sad news. Uh, so Alison uh, Phillips uh, and Rose Mum has gone to be with the Lord, um, which is sad, sad news, always grief, but also wonderful. She knew the Lord. Uh, she's with him now. Her suffering has ended. Um, she's a woman who I was chatting to Anne, and, and uh, she's a lady who grew more beautiful as she grew older, more um, in love with the Lord and a light for him in the world, uh, part of our church for many years, and so uh, sad but wonderful. Funeral details uh, will follow and be confirmed, but please be, do be in prayer for Anne and for her um, extended family, which are all uh, here with us. So let's pray uh, now for them and uh, for, for as we engage with God in his word. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are very aware um, of our frailty as human beings and that death is so very, very close to each one of us. Uh, thank you so much for Alison's trust in Jesus alone as her saviour. And so we are confident that her eternal future is secure. Uh, please, Father, strengthen our hope. Please comfort Anne and the rest of the Rowe family with your precious promises. And Father, uh, thank you so much for the example of the Apostle Paul. Uh, please now give us insight into his heart and motives and uh, the essence of who he was and how he lived so that he might be a model uh, for us in how we are to live our lives. And uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you know how sometimes um, in some movies uh, the main character has a personal theme song? So you know, every time they come on the screen or uh, when the action starts to escalate, their theme song plays. And um, if it's a good personal theme song, it just captures them. You know, it just is them. It just captures the very essence of them. Now, I'm going to do something very, very risky uh, right now. And so I need your help. I need you to look after me in this because otherwise I'll be embarrassed. I'm going, to, I'm going to hum a couple of theme songs and you're going to tell me whose personal theme songs these are. All right? You do that? All right, let's give it a go. Uh, here's the first one. Da 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 Who's that? Harrison Ford. Indiana Jones. Indiana, yeah, Harrison Ford plays Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones. And it's a good one, isn't it? Because it captures that, that sort of um, adventure, excitement, triumph, a little bit of scallywag, naughtiness. It, it, it's, it's a good one. It captures him in that movie, I reckon. Uh, how about this one? Da, 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 da. Da 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 da. Who was that? Darth Vader, and I just think that's the best one, isn't it? It is. It's the very essence of Darth Vader in that song. Dark, evil, foreboding. What about the Apostle Paul? Now I don't have one for him. What about the Apostle Paul? What do you think his personal theme song would be? You know, when he turns up in a town and the theme song sort of plays, what, 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 what does it sound like? What's the title of that theme song? What's the very essence of him and how he lived? Because I think this passage gives us a real window into that. Uh, opens the window into his very heart, his very motives, and the very essence of him and his life. And I think there's four key elements that I want to pull out, that if you look at each of these, you place them together and you think, yeah, that, that, that gives us a sense of him. That helps us to understand and hear the theme song. So that's what we're going to do together. Look at these four elements. The first element is this. Paul persisted with people who caused him pain. 
Paul persisted with people who caused him pain. See, if there was ever a church that Paul would have been justified in just walking away from, just writing off, it was the Corinthian church. Was there ever a church that caused Paul more pain than the church in Corinth? You know, think about the church with me. This was a church that was, was very sexually immoral. Corinth was a, a, a seaport and so was rife with sexual immorality and prostitution. Not to mention it was the site of the Temple of Aphrodite, the, sec, the, the goddess of love and of sex. And if you wanted to go and worship there, there are a thousand priestess prostitutes you could worship with. Sexual immorality and prostitution, just common in the city of Corinth. And so if you're a Christian who's been converted out of that, it was very easy to struggle with that past and slip back into it. So much so that Paul has to warn them again and again and again against their sexual immorality. This was the church of Corinth. The church of Corinth was a divided church. There were conflicts and divisions over leadership in the church. I follow this leader. I follow this leader. My leader's better than yours. No, no, my is. So there's factions infighting in the church which is a terrible blight on any church but this was the church of Corinth the church of Corinth was a worldly church deeply impressed by power prestige wealth influence success cleverness they were a church that was caught up with the superficial and the worldly and was largely losing touch with God the son who came in weakness who died in shame and humiliation in order to save them but this was the church of Corinth The Corinthian church was a church that had begun to accept a false gospel. So false teachers, false apostles had arrived and had taught a different Jesus of a different gospel, a different spirit, and the Corinthian church had accepted it all easily enough. This was the church of Corinth. And in all this, the way they treated Paul must have hurt him very, very deeply. See, Paul's their spiritual father. He's the one who has brought them to birth by sharing the gospel with them. And seeing them come to faith. He's the one who from, has raised them as infants, as new believers. He visited them and wrote to them again and again and again in order to encourage them to keep faithfully following Jesus and staying on track. He cared for them, worked for them, agonised over them because like a father he loved his child. And yet despite all this they treated him so badly. They doubted him. They thought so little of him. They started to turn away from him as God's true apostle to the false. They disrespected him. And so the Corinthians have effectively forced Paul into the mark of worldly boasting in order to grab their attention and shake some sanity back into them. They forced Paul to speak their ugly language of boasting in order to get through of them. Though as we've seen over the last few weeks, even as he does boast, he boasts with such mocking irony that he anti-boasts and shows the only thing he wants to boast in is the Lord Jesus Christ and his weakness which displays the Lord's power uh, even more so. But this is the position the Corinthian church have put him in. They've been so poor and so worldly in assessing leadership that have become enamoured with these super apostles and thought so little of him. And so in verse 11 Paul writes, I have made a fool of myself but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles, even though I'm nothing. The Corinthian church who should have commended Paul instead have driven him to boasting to show that he's not in the least inferior to the super apostles, which he needs to do so that the Corinthians are not drawn away to a different gospel and lose Christ altogether. And he wraps up this whole section on boasting by saying, verse 12, 
I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. How were you inferior to the other churches except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. You should have commended us as true apostles because we demonstrated all the marks of a true apostle amongst you. Among them, we did signs, miracles, and wonders. Have you forgotten that we did those amongst you? That's what Jesus did, do you remember? They accredited him as the the Messiah, signs, wonders, and miracles. We did those very things, and they accredited us as true apostles as well. And we did those things amongst you in the context of persevering in suffering. Another mark of a true apostle, Jesus suffered, we suffered. How did we treat you, Corinthians, as inferior to any of the other churches? Except this one thing, we didn't take money from you. We loved you enough not to take money from you. And then ironically he says, forgive me this wrong to love you so much. The Corinthian church forced Paul into boasting when they should have loved him and commended him, but instead of commending him, they didn't love him, he who loved them so deeply. And even worse suggested Paul was financially corrupt. Flip over to verse 16. Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Yet tricky fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent to you? I urged Titus to go to you, and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not walk in the same footsteps by the same spirit? Paul here again speaks about his financial integrity because there were some in the church of Corinth who were questioning it. They had doubts and raised doubts that Paul, you know, he might say, oh yeah, 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 we don't take any money from you. But then his mates come, receive money, and he takes a cut later. Trickery. So you can see why earlier in the letter, chapters 8, chapters 9, Paul goes into great detail explaining how the financial gift collected from the Corinthians is going to be taken to Jerusalem and is all going to be above board in honesty, transparency and integrity. And here, Paul says, look, did we ever exploit you? Did Titus and the brother we sent ever exploit you? It's not who we are. We walk in the same spirit of honesty and integrity. Do you get a sense of how the Corinthian church had treated and continued to treat Paul? Years of coldness, years of suspicion, doubt, lack of confidence, lack of respect, failing to heed his instructions, even though this is the apostle of God. Years of pain, years of rejection, and yet in spite of all this, Paul doesn't write them off, yet persists with them in love. He continued and continued and continued to work for their spiritual good, to love, serve, care, do good to them. He persisted with people despite the pain they caused him. You know, people are a bit like coffee mugs. You carry around your coffee mug and it's full of liquid. And you can see the mug, but you can't see what's actually inside, what it it actually uh, contains. But then someone bumps the mug and the liquid that's always been there, always in the mug, spills out of the mug and you can see what was actually inside the mug. Same with people. You can look at people and just see the surface, but there's all this stuff going on under the surface. That's what they're really like inside, what's really going on for them, but you can't see it on the outside, and often they can't see it themselves. And it's not until life bumps them and bumps them that what was actually in there all along spills out. And sometimes what spills out actually catches you by surprise because it's ugly, ungodly. It shocks you, it shocks other people, but it's actually just what's been there all along. Sometimes the person shiny and clean on the outside gets bumped by the hardships of life and jealousy comes out, anger comes out, 
writing people off comes out, lust comes out, whatever it is comes out, but not Paul. Even though this Corinthian church had bumped him and bumped him and bumped him and his emotional reserves must have been running very low, what spills out of him is not ugliness but beauty. He doesn't arc up in anger and he doesn't cut them off, instead he bears with and bears with and bears with. Forgives, 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 works for their good time and time again and cares even as they slap him in the face. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Like his Lord. What's Paul's personal theme song? Well, the first key element is Paul persisted with people who caused him pain. Second element. Paul gave rather than received. And you see it in his ministry to the Corinthians, verse 14. Now I'm ready to visit you for the third time and I will not be a burden to you because what I want is not your possessions but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Paul's planning his third visit to the Corinthian church, and this is the context for the end of this letter. He's coming again to see them. And he wants the Corinthians to know the way he's been conducting his ministry among them with regard to finances is the way he's going to continue when he visits them this third time. When he comes this third time, he's going to continue not to be a financial burden to them. He's going to continue not to collect any money from them. Because, verse 14, what I want is not your possessions, but you. In the sense that Paul wanted them firstly for Jesus. That their heart, that their love, that their allegiance would be for Jesus. And then secondarily, because their heart, love, allegiance was for Jesus, it would then be for him, Jesus' apostle. Paul doesn't want any of the possessions from the Corinthians. Rather, what he wants is that they might be captivated by Jesus. And so captivated by Jesus, then they align themselves with Jesus' apostle Paul because that's, what, that's the Corinthians' greatest good. Now, that's why we try to conduct ourselves as a church. So if you're here, you're checking out Christianity, we love having you here, we want you to be here, we do not want your money. What we want is all of you. All of you for Jesus that you would come to know and be captivated by him who loves you and who has died to save you, because that is the greatest thing for you. And for Paul, this approach to money is obvious because it's the way things often work in the world. Verse 14, children shouldn't have to save up for their parents, parents for their children. If you've got kids, you know, kids are expensive. Kids cost a lot. Kids cost a lot in lots of ways, but particularly financially. And being a parent really is about pouring yourself out and sacrificing for your kids, including sacrificing financially. And so you work hard, you save money to spend the money in order to feed them, clothe them, care for them, raise them, educate them and set them on a good path into adult life. Parents save up for their kids. Kids don't save up for their parents. Paul, spiritual father to the church of Corinth, he's the one who birthed them, he's the one who raised them from infancy, And so, as a father, he places no financial burden upon them, his children, but rather, as a father, he himself carries the load, either by tent-making or receiving support from other churches in order to serve and strengthen them as Christians. Rather than receive, Paul gives, and gives gladly, which is the very nature of the Christian life. And you can see this is the very essence of Paul's life. Have a look at verse 15. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Paul says quite profoundly, he will spend everything he has for them. All his money, 
all his possessions and expend his very self for them, his time, his energy, his worry, his very life for the Corinthian church, that they might be strengthened and remain faithful to Jesus, all out of his great love for them, his children. This is what the Apostle Paul was all about. And if you can cast your mind back two weeks ago, um, Jez unpacked what it looked like for Paul to expend all of himself. The sufferings, the beatings, the floggings, the sleepless nights. The, he poured the whole of himself out for the Lord Jesus and for the establishment of the church. In the last letter uh, that Paul writes to Timothy from prison as he approaches death, Paul speaks of his life as being poured out like a drink offering. Gone. In a puff of smoke. Totally burnt up in the service of the Lord. Expended in totality. A couple of weeks ago, I um, replaced my old mobile phone. It was an iPhone 7. And so can I just say, good on you, old phone. It just charged on and, and lasted and lasted and lasted. But for the last maybe eight months, it was not working great. You know, the, the battery life was terrible. If you wanted to use it as a clock, which I do, it would last about three hours before it needed charging. And so everywhere you went, you'd be looking for uh, places to charge it. Might as well have a landline at, at, at that point. Ten minutes of, of uh, call time, the battery was just spent. Totally spent. My phone had done all its work, spent all of itself. The battery was... That's Paul. <laughs> worked, worked, worked. Poured himself out, drained himself. There was nothing left in the battery, no more in the tank. Every ounce of him expended for the church. What's Paul's personal theme song? Second key element, he gave rather than received. Third element, Paul strengthened others rather than defended himself. Verse 19, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? We've been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. Paul says, do you think that what we've been doing in our letters, in this letter, in our visits to you, is defending ourselves? Do you think that what we've been doing in this foolish boasting is defending myself? That I need your approval? That I need to defend myself before you? That I need you to commend me? In one sense, I do not care what you think of me. In fact, I don't even care what I think of me. We conduct our ministry in the sight of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I only care what he thinks of me. I alone, I care alone what he thinks. We're not defending ourselves before you in order to get your commendation or your tick of approval. Rather, dear friends, everything we do is for you, is for your strengthening. And what might look to you like we're defending ourselves is actually us trying to change the whole way you think about life and the world and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about us and our well-being and our popularity and our acceptance. It's for you that you might understand Jesus afresh and turn from the false apostles back to the true gospel, the true Lord Jesus. Everything we do is for your strengthening so that you remain faithful to him. Paul's whole life and all his ministry, it wasn't about him and his well-being and what people think of him. It was about others and their spiritual good. People coming to salvation and being strengthened in Christ. What's Paul's personal theme song? Third key element? Paul strengthened others rather than defended himself. Fourth element. Paul tied his heart to people's spiritual well-being. Verse 20. For I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, 
and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you and I'll be grieved over many of you who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery in which you have indulged. Paul here shares his fear, his worry, his concern, and his fear is he's going to come to them this third time and get to them, and what he's going to find there is the people will not be, the Corinthians will not be as he wants them to be, which is they'll still be living in unrepentant sin. He'll find them living in discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, disorder, despite his challenges and rebukes in his other letters. He's afraid that infighting and factionalism around, the, around leaders, I follow this one, I follow that one, I, will be rife and that they won't have heeded his previous rebukes but will have continued in unrepentance. And he'll come amongst them and he'll witness all sorts of strife and divisions around leadership. And he's afraid that when he comes amongst them, he'll also see them unrepentant with regard to sexual immorality. That verse 21, those who've been seeing sexually but have been rebuked by Paul, will not have listened but will have continued in unrepentance and continued in impurity, sexual sin and debauchery. Paul's big fear, his big worry, is that the people in the church of Corinth will have continued in unrepentance before the Lord rather than repenting, turning back to Jesus and receiving his forgiveness. Sinning, particularly in the realms of church division and sexual immorality, despite the warnings of Paul again and again, they will not have repented. That's what he fears he'll find when he comes amongst them. Afraid that they're actually denying Jesus' lordship over them. And so he'll be grieved and he'll be humbled before God because his work amongst the Corinthian Christians will have been a failure. And he's afraid that when he comes to them, not only will he not find them as he wants them to be, but they'll not find him as they want him to be. That is, he'll come amongst them bringing discipline. And along with the faithful members of the church of Corinth, he will need to expel the unrepentant sinners from the church of Corinth. Just as he told them to do with the man living in unrepentance of the sin of incest back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Can you see, though, in all this, Paul is not emotionally distant from the church of Corinth. He's not emotionally aloof or disconnected from his congregation. He hasn't set up these emotional boundaries to protect himself emotionally from their foolishness and their sin and their rejection. He's tied his very heart to their spiritual progress. In some measure, he's bound up his emotional well-being with them. His fear, his grief are wound together with their progress in the faith, like parents with their kids. Have you ever been in a, um, in a public place and you couldn't find your, your kid? Yeah. Uh, we're down at um, uh, Terrigal uh, with that um, little mini, tiny little swimming pool. I'm not sure why it's so small, but that little rock pool swimming pool is. And the kids were playing there, you know, where the um, boardwalk now starts. It wasn't there back then. And uh, there were two kids, they're playing, and they sort of went around in the bushes, turned away to chat for a moment, and then turned back, and one kid came out and the other kid didn't. Tim... Tim, where are you? It's not in the bush, it's not around, it's not up in the grass, he's not in the water, he's, he's not... And as you start to look frantically, people catch the, catch the fear and they start looking and they start looking and soon there's a lot of people and they're, they're moving up over the hill trying to look at, has he gone up over the haven, is he on the road, is he, where has he gone, where has he gone? He's down near the surf club. This is a three-year-old kid. 
standing in the surf club, he thought he needed a Band-Aid. And he knew that. I don't know how he knew. That's where you go to get a Band-Aid. So he's down there. We found him. But you know that experience. Parents are so deeply emotionally bound to their kids. Their fears and concerns and grief are all wrapped up with their children's well-being. When your kid stubs your toe, your heart hurts. You know? That's Paul for his spiritual children, the Corinthian church. He doesn't just sit emotionally light and distant to them. Even to people who are straying in sin, he's deeply concerned about their spiritual lives and worried when he sees they might be slipping towards unrepentance. What's Paul's personal theme? Well, the, the fourth key element is that Paul tied his heart to people's spiritual well-being. Now, can you start to hear the tune? Can you start to think what the title to the theme song might be? The four elements we've looked at. Paul persisted with people who caused him pain. Gladly gave rather than received, strengthened others rather than defended himself, tied his heart to people's spiritual well-being. Can you, can you hear the theme song? Can you give it a title? Well, I actually think in the passage there's a, there's a brilliant little phrase that, that captures the very essence of Paul and how he lived and who he was. A little phrase that sounds to me like this, this could be Paul's theme song. It's the one I'd pick for him anyway. You know, every time he entered a town, every time he came into a village, every church he was ministering to, this is the theme song playing in the background. And I think the theme song is in verse 15, and it is to gladly spend and be spent. Verse 15. So I'll very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. Gladly spend and be spent. I just think that captures the very essence of the Apostle Paul. Now, in some ways, this is a theme song unique to the Apostle. He was, after all, an Apostle. In fact, he was a unique Apostle, the Apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, he was the servant of the Lord who was filling up in his flesh the sufferings of Christ for the church. Christ was establishing his church through Paul spending, pouring all of himself out, suffering for the church. Paul had a very, very unique role in God's plan of salvation. And so there's something unique about the extreme nature of Paul's sufferings and the way in which he absolutely spent everything he had for the church. However, as Christians, our personal theme song, though not played with exactly the same intensity as Paul's, should be played in harmony with it. I'm not Paul. I'm not an apostle. And so there's going to be significant differences between us and Paul's life, but our Christian life is to bear a very, very strong resemblance to the Apostle's life, which is to the Lord Jesus' life. Same heart, same motive, same essence. And so our personal theme song will be, in echo of Paul's, gladly spend and be spent. But doesn't this just massively clash with the theme song of our world? Because the theme song of our world is, me, 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 mine, my family, my friends, me. But the Christian theme song is love, to gladly spend and be spent in love for Christ and his people. Let's apply this to ourselves. The very nature of the Christian life, of Christian love, is to be spent, is to spend, firstly. To spend our money in such a way that it means people are saved and Christians are strengthened. We heard a couple of weeks ago that um, as we think about giving towards church, there's an element of our giving that's just obligation. It's just responsibility. So you receive benefits from the ministry of a church, then there's an obligation, a responsibility that places upon you to contribute financially to the running of those ministries. But that's not what's going on here. That's just base layer thinking about giving. 
What's going on here is Paul is not receiving any direct benefit from the ministry he's engaged in. He's spending his money financially purely for the spiritual benefit of others. The nature of gospel love is to spend our money for the spiritual good of others. And so the challenge for us is, how do I go with it? Giving to the ministry of our church, not just just because I receive benefit from the ministry of our church, but because we want the ministry of the church to be more effective in seeing disciples made and disciples grown. Giving sacrificially, not just so it will benefit me and my family, but so that the word will go out into people's lives and people will be saved and strengthened in the faith. Do you see how this type of giving is driven only by conviction? It's driven by being convinced that the gospel of God is the power of God for the salvation of humanity and changes people's eternal destinies. You won't give in this way unless you're convinced of that. And you won't give in this way unless it's driven by love. Because this is profoundly unselfish giving. The more we love others and have a deep concern about their eternal futures, the more we will give to gospel work. And our church is not just about providing a great ministry for us and our families. Now it is, and we try to, but it's also about reaching the coast for Christ. It's about doing all we can to see this coast and our country one for Christ. And so sacrificially giving to the ministry of our church to see this happen more and more. The nature of gospel love is to spend our money for the spiritual good of lovers. Spend. And be spent. The nature of gospel love is to be spent for the spiritual good of others. Not just our money, but to expend ourselves as well. Our time, our energy, our focus, our commitment, our worry, serving others at cost to ourselves. It's just Paul's whole mode of being, isn't it? Same with Jesus. Jesus who gave everything, suffered everything, spent everything of himself to serve us for our spiritual good. It's it's the nature of the gospel life, of gospel love. And so the challenge, how do we go? Giving my time, energy, focus, commitment, worry for the spiritual good of others. You know, um, as a church, we often use shorthand for things. Why don't you get involved in ministry? Why don't you join a ministry team? And that's fine, but after a while you can hear that and it sounds a bit like, oh, church just needs to run the stuff it's doing and so they need me to get involved in a ministry so that we can run all the things we want to do. Now, that's, that's true. You know, if people don't get involved in ministry, if people don't join ministry teams, we, we can't do all the things that we love to do under God. In fact, if I sat down with you right now, I could show you 100 urgent needs across church. I, I could show you three um, classes, primary scripture classes without a teacher that need a teacher presently. I could show you a, a bunch of things. But the other bigger thing that's going on when we talk about getting involved in ministry, joining a ministry team is... This is about us rightly expressing our Christian life. This is about Christian maturity and Christian love. Because it's, if we're not to some extent being spent in the cause of the gospel, we're not living the life that God intends for us. Now, I find there are a number of common hurdles that people face in this area. Our mental, emotional hurdles that cause us to hold back from getting involved in serving and in expending ourselves for the spiritual good of others. I'm going to give a six. I'm going to whip through them very quickly. But see, do do any of these resonate with you? Stir you in some sort of way? One, first hurdle. There's the, I'll just do informal ministry hurdle. 
Sometimes people can push back against the idea of formal ministry, back against the idea of, you know, I, I don't want to get involved in all the formal things that church runs. I just want to serve the people around me and you know, love people a bit more organically and I don't want to be involved in teams and rosters and organisation and that sort of thing. That sounds lovely, doesn't it? The problem is, for most people who think like that, serving just doesn't happen. It's, it's the nature and reality of who we are as human beings. Despite our best intentions, if we don't do something that helps us serve, we tend not to serve. Now, some people do, but it's generally the case that people who don't do any formal ministry do a lot less informal ministry of loving and serving people around them. And it's also generally the case that people who do do more formal ministry often tend to do a lot more informal ministry of loving and serving those around them. It's a bit like um, exercise. You, know, you can say, oh, don't go for any of that formal exercise stuff, don't want to join a gym, don't want to do any fitness classes, don't want to be committed to anything in particular, I just want to do exercise you know, in and through and when and how I feel like doing it. What happens? You don't do it. Maybe a few select people do, but you, you just don't do it. Whereas when you say, no, I'm going to join a gym, I'm going to join a fitness class, well, I've paid my money, I guess I'm going to go. You lock yourself in and you do the exercise. And then actually what you find is, I'm, I'm feeling better, I'm eating better, I'm, you start to exercise, oh, I go for a walk here and I do this there. And informal exercise starts to bleed into your life because it's fueled and equipped by the formal. I think that's helpful. It's, it's, that's what formal ministry often does. It ensures that I serve, but it also fuels me for informal service. And when we get organised together, formal ministry... Often our ministries are far more impacting and effective. So can I encourage you to jump the, I'll just do informal ministry hurdle. Two, the I'm a consultant hurdle. You know what happens as you get older? You stop working on the tools and you start leading people who work on, managing the people who work on the tools. And over time, you become in your working life very competent at telling others how to do their jobs really well. So competent, in fact, that you can work with other people in your industry to help them better do their job well and be effective in their work. In fact, you can even teach people leadership and management skills in other industries as well. You become a consultant. It's just the nature of how organisational life functions. But the problem with that is you can come into church and think, I'm keen to serve. But what you mean by serving is, I'm keen to tell other people how to do their jobs better. What are the issues with that? Well, one is there's just lots of work that needs to be done, and so I need to tell myself, just do the work, right? Another is you can be blind to the need to just humbly be servants. And I don't need to be a leader, I don't need to be any expert, just humbly be servants. Remind yourself of that, Graham. And a third is that often people who are experts in their industry are not experts in gospel ministry. And leading in business is often a very different game, more in tune with the world than uh, leading in gospel work. So can I encourage you to jump the I'm the consultant hurdle and just jump in to do what needs to be done. The gifting over need hurdle. Uh, This one's a challenging one because God enables us and gives us gifts in many things and when we do those things we enjoy them and they often go well. And so when we think I'm super keen to serve, you think I'm super keen to serve in the things that I do well, the things that I'm gifted in. But sometimes what we're gifted in is not the actual thing that's needed at this moment. What's needed is something else. And then you can think, well, I'm not going to do that because I'm not actually gifted in that. But the Bible flips all this on its head. While we are gifted and ideally we can work, serve using our gifts and there's a great 
power and synergy when that happens. The Bible encourages sacrificial service, which is just do what needs to be done. Just do what the Lord needs us to do. And so if it doesn't naturally align with my gifts, and that's okay. So can I encourage you to jump the gifting over need hurdle and be quick to ask yourself what needs to be done as the first thought. Fourth, very similar, the enjoyment over need hurdle. Essentially the same, but it's the mentality of if I don't enjoy that ministry, then I won't do it or I shouldn't do it. And in our society, that makes total sense. Because in our society, you don't do anything you don't want to do. You, know, you opt into things you want to do and you opt out of things you don't like doing. The exception is work. I have to work because I need money, so I do that. But everything else, don't do it if you don't enjoy it. And so you can bring this into thinking about ministry and think, if I don't enjoy that ministry, then I won't do that or I shouldn't do that. But Jesus didn't go to the cross because he thought this is going to be a really great time. He did it in sacrificial love for others. Fifth, that there must be heaps of people to do that hurdle. In a larger church, I, I just reckon this is a big one. You come and you look around and you go, look at all these people. Man, they, they, everything must be covered. And you look on a Sunday and it sort of looks like everything is covered and you think, I'm obviously not needed to serve here. Can I say, there is nothing further from the truth. There are needs all over the place that you could be engaged in. And you never get to the point where, oh, we're nailing it because we always want to do more to see more people saved and, and grown in the faith. Now, I do want to say, we have a wonderful army of servants. So many of you are engaged in, in such significant gospel ministry and it is making a massive difference for the cause of the gospel. So can I encourage you? I am so encouraged by you. Good on you. But I also just want to nudge you to say, the need is great, we need us all. So can I encourage you to jump that hurdle as well? Final hurdle. The I need to keep my life manageable hurdle. Now, I'm very cautious about this one because there are people amongst us who are in some very difficult and tough situations. And church needs to be a place where you can come and you don't need to spend and you don't need to be spent. You just need to be looked after and ministered to by God through his word. However, if you do find I do have a limited capacity and you're able to start engaging in loving service of others, it's wonderfully good for the gospel, but for you too. It actually strengthens you and lifts your perspective beyond yourself and grows you in the Lord. And sometimes the people who falter at the I-need-to-keep-life-manageable hurdle are the people whose lives are pretty manageable. And a bit more mess and chaos in their lives would be good for their spiritual good and for others. Again, can I say... There are people in some very difficult circumstances and it's okay just to be here and just to be loved. But can I nudge the rest of us? Paul didn't live a manageable life, did he? He could say at times, we despaired of life itself so that we might rely on God who raises the dead. Now, some of us are in moments of weakness now. We haven't put ourselves there. They've just come upon us. And that causes us to rely on God who raises the dead. That's the place you want to be. That's the authentic experience of God. I am weak and so trust alone in God to pull me through and he is strong through my weakness. But for some of us, the way we will be weak is to step into situations where we serve more and it makes life unmanageable and more unmanageable so that we feel weak, so that we rely on God who raises the dead. Because in those moments, that's the experience of God um, 
the authentic experience of God of the Christian life. Now, I don't know, maybe one of those hurdles resonated with you, but uh, I just want to finish with this. I, I find perhaps the most challenging word in this little phrase is gladly. To believe that God, when he says that spending and being spent is the best life to the point where I do it gladly, is very hard. And I think it's hard because we've spent so long hearing the theme song of the world from the world, but also the little voice from the within, the theme song that goes, me, 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 me. Do you hear that? That is a death march. That is a death march. You don't want to be singing that song. In the end, I will only gladly spend and be spent if I grasp how Jesus absolutely spent himself in love for me. On your seats are these um, cards that Jamie mentioned, that Dave mentioned, um, and they're a possible way to respond to the challenge of today's passage. You can see the QR code there. It'll take you to a web page. The web page has a place where you can spend, give financially, or be spent ways you can opt into serving or say you want to chat to someone about serving. Um, So can I encourage you, we're not going to do that now, but you want to take that, you want to stick it in your pocket right now, take it home, pull it out and uh, take action out of love for the Lord and out of love for others. Uh, We're going to sing in a moment, but I'll just give you a couple of moments as the band comes up to think about um, how you might respond to this, uh, maybe pray quietly and then I'll finish um, by praying uh, for us. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus that he utterly spent himself in every way to save us. And we thank you, Father, for the Apostle Paul who spent and was spent for the establishment of the church and for the gospel. And Lord, we ask, please help us more and more to grasp uh, richly, deeply what Christ has done for us so that we might spend and be spent in the cause of the gospel in love for you and in love for others. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.